Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Rima Rattan. In her new book, Why Race Still Matters, Alana Lenton argues that we've been talking about race all wrong and that this stems from a lack of race-critical literacy. To explore what we're getting wrong and discuss other ideas in Why Race Still Matters, I called Alana up for a chat. So I'd just like to begin by acknowledging that I live and work on Gadigal country, that this is unceded Aboriginal land and that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, just in terms of myself, I'm uh, formerly an associate professor of cultural and social analysis at Western Sydney University. I've been working here for about eight years uh, since moving over from, from Europe. Okay, so your latest book is Why Race Still Matters. What was your the motivation for writing this book? It's interesting that you should ask me that. I, You know, I guess... Uh, the book is really the culmination of work I've been doing over the last little while, thinking about my relationship to race and I guess the way in which I think about race sitting in relation to the question of racism. And I was asked, I was approached by Polity Books, which is the, the editors, the publishers of the book, to write something. In fact, they asked me to write a book on borders and it's really not my field of, of expertise. And I entered into a discussion with uh, the editor and I proposed uh, this book. And it's kind of, you know, it's it's four chapters in the book, and each one deals with a distinct problem in terms of my thinking on on race and racism. It was great because it allowed me to explore and bring together, I suppose, uh, you know, thinking that I've been doing in different directions and, and make them also talk to each other. So these different topics talk to each other within the book. You talk a lot about race as a technology. Can you can you mm-hmm. explain that? Okay, so what I wanted to try to get away from in the book is thinking about race in any sense as a naturalized category or a form of identity. And I think in general, you know, parlance, when we go around, uh, speak to our students, speak to colleagues, speak to people generally, there's this notion that race is something that describes people and that we can sort of roughly divide the world into groups that we think of as being races. And we also have a notion, at least those of us who've done some thinking about this, that this isn't real, that this is somehow socially constructed. So there are no innate biological differences between people, but nonetheless that this works, that you know people can be divided racially. And I wanted to show really that just thinking about race in terms of categorization in the biological or the genetic sense is only one Piece. And what I rather do is think about race as a political project, which is ultimately, and I take this from the African-American studies a scholar, Barna Hesse, uh, he's actually a black British um, scholar who moved to the United States and teaches at Northwestern University. He talks about race ultimately about the dividing of the world of, into Europeanness and non-Europeanness. So it's really about thinking about, well, what is within Europe, what belongs to Europe, what what characterizes being European, which is, of course, linked to the idea of being human, a a real human, a complete human, and everything that sits outside of that. But this project is not merely ideological. It's really a political project that takes shape 
at a time at which Europe is expanding itself and, and you know, expropriating and exploiting the majority of the world for its own enrichment. So race is really a technology of legitimation. It's a sense, in a sense, a story that Europeans tell themselves about why the world is, has been organized in their image, why the, why the world has been organized in order to enrich Europeans um, and, and um, shore up power within European bodies and political projects, if that makes sense. But you talk about the need to, to explain what is social about race. Okay, so the reason why we talk about phenomena as being socially constructed, uh, particularly as sociologists, and I'm sort of, I suppose, trained as a sociologist, social scientists in general, want to make very clear that when we talk about a phenomenon like race or indeed gender, and gender is maybe something that we're more familiar talking about as being socially constructed, that we want to be very clear that these are ways of organizing humanity, ways of organizing the different people that we see before us, right, that are... Uh, that are social, that are that are created, invented by human beings. They're not things that exist, pre-exist in nature. And the entire enterprise of racial science, which is to try to treat human beings as though they were equivalent to plants, say, for example, and could be ca- categorized according to species and sort of logged down in these kind of, you know, very um, extensive, uh, you know, taxonomies that were created by Uh, the scientists of the 18th and 19th centuries, right? But this is actually um, not based on any kind of biological reality. And people who do that kind of work, so geneticists, biologists, physical anthropologists who wanted to disprove race as a biological reality have done a lot of work in trying to disprove the idea that there are real genetic differences between groups that have, you know, traditionally been thought of as racially distinct. And that work exists. But the problem that we have to translate that to a public, so when we talk about trying to make the public more racially literate or trying to teach what this actually means uh, in our daily lives is that we end up in this kind of vicious circle of talking about race as being a social construct. So a social construct being means, again, something that's been invented for social purposes. But once you ask, and this is something, again, that I take from Barna Hesse, who's built on Ian Hacking's work uh, on the social construction of what, he said, well, if you ask the question, what is race the social construction of? The answer is usually, well, race is the social construction of the biological idea of race. So Hesse argues, well, that's not good enough because all you do is end up with the biological idea. And what he wants to do, and which I follow, is to talk about race as being, he calls it colonially constituted. And it's constituted both uh, within Europe, outside of Europe, uh, later on, in distinct, in relation to distinct projects, the specific projects of colonization, of enslavement, later on within migration and border regime, within and, and within everyday practices that we think of as being, you know, instances of institutional racism. So employment practices, um, educational disparities, um, Uh, and so on. And all of these types of instances are the projects within which racialization, so the way in which we ascribe racial differences to differently constituted groups of people, according to these kind of uh, racial lines, is what we're actually talking about. And that piece showing how that actually happens and why it happens and what its roots are, so why we've come to this situation in which racism continues to be a fact of daily life, is the project of, well, tell me what is socially constructed about race. How is it being socially constructed? That's the part that I'm interested in, not just putting the full stop after race is 
the social construction of the biological idea of race. And there's, there's an inherent hierarchy, isn't there? I mean, that's what's being made, a hierarchy of deservedness. Yes, I mean, I, I like to think about the way in which um, Alex Wehelia, um, again, an African-American studies scholar, uh, wrote in a brilliant book called Habeas Biscuits, which I refer to a lot. He talks about race as being, you know, the categorization of groups of people into what he calls the human, the not quite human and the non-human. And that's really what we're talking about. So race is about giving meaning to this notion of what it, what constitutes humanity. And, you know, again, the French philosopher Etienne Balibar wrote about this many years ago when he talks about, well, it, as soon as you want to define the idea of what he calls universal man, to take that old fashioned language, you know, that, so the human, who is the human? You have to say who is not the human. And the project of defining the human comes about within the context of European, again, expansion, colonization, enslavement. And it's within, you know, the, 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 the where upon seeing those who are considered um, who are there for the for the for, for the exploiting. So indigenous peoples, enslaved uh, African peoples and so on, that Europeans start to elaborate this notion of themselves as being the incarnation of the human in contradistinction to all of these other peoples who were non-human. Now, of course, there are pre-existing uh, religious, um, you know, there's re pre-existing religious uh, thinking around this in which you know, blackness is, is uh, associated with, uh, you know, demonic uh, characteristics and so on. But it's really only out of necessity, out of the project of domination and exploitation of the majority of the world's lands, again, for the enrichment of Europeans, that you start to need this justification of creating what you're calling a hierarchy with European humanity at the top and uh, other people sort of um, hierarchized underneath. So it's a project, again, of legitimation. I think this, this, this notion is very important to, um, to drive home. The intention is, or the driver is economic. The driver is it is in great part economic and political, and of course the two go together. So that's why theorists of uh, racial capitalism, for example, will talk about no capitalism being non-racial. There's not a racial capitalism and an other capitalism, because ultimately capitalism and the project of race grow up hand in hand. You argue against the idea of racism uh, being a moral wrong. I think what I'm trying to talk about, this is mainly the argument in the second uh, chapter of the yes. book in which I move more into the discussion of the relationship between race and and racism and there's a lot of uh, confusion about the interrelationship between these terms and I think we don't really have time for me to get into uh, the way in which I discuss that but again hopefully that will lead people to want to, to read, the read the book <laughs> a little sec. but what I want to say is that we know racism is wrong OK, um, I often talk about the way in which racism is talked about when it's talked about in schools, not not enough. Right. But when children in Australian schools, for example, do have anything said to them about racism, generally it's related to something like bullying. OK, so um, we know that it's something mean. It's something that you shouldn't do to others. OK, so and we understand it in terms of a morality or moral position in life. So those who are racist are those who are morally uh, beyond the pale. They are not people who we want to associate with, uh, associate with. And I think the majority of people, there are people who openly declare themselves racist, but they are really on the fringes. The majority of people who enact racism through institutions, through, uh, you know, through systems, are, don't think of themselves as being racist because we've so 
successfully related uh, being racist, firstly to an identity position, right? So you are a racist or you are not a racist. And I'm arguing that it's a lot more complex than that, um, but also to something that's connected deeply with, with one's own moral stance. And most of the people think of themselves as being good people. So as soon as there's an intimation that they're being called racist, their number one gut reaction is, let me distance myself from this. This is why Sarah Ahmed, for example, has spoken very usefully uh, of the idea of people uh, thinking that being called a racist is worse than the actual racism. And this has become very common. So I remember Adam Briggs uh, spoke about this a, a number of years ago when he called out blackface. Indeed, I speak about this in the book. And he said it was the amount of outrage about me just simply calling out the fact that these, I think it was some football players, had, had, had done blackface. Uh, there was so much outrage about it that it became worse the fact that he'd spoken about the blackface and the actual racism of the blackface, yeah? And so we're all familiar with this. So what I'm arguing is that really thinking about racism as morality is actually really dangerous for us if we think about if we want to advance an anti-racist position. We need to be able to step back from that and talk about race, as I was doing before, as a political project, as a technology of rule, as a system in which we all have a role to play from which some benefit, uh, even if they don't necessarily want to benefit, and some lose out. And as soon as we talk about it in that way, we'll find it easier to, um, to, to stop this kind of pantomime of enacting this kind of moral outrage about being called a racist. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Communication Mixdown on 3CR. This week, I'm talking to Alana Lenton about her book, Why Race Still Matters. I asked Alana how we could start to have better conversations about race. So firstly, we need to talk about racial literacy as a lifelong project of unlearning. That's the number one thing. And it has to be instilled uh, and it has to be embedded within educational practices and reinforced from, from an early age. Uh, that's and, and obviously in Australia, we're very far from being able to even begin a conversation about the necessity for that. Uh, for example, in my university, even mooting the idea that we should have a kind of uh, an anti-racist cu- curriculum that all students uh, would have to take, which I think should be the minimum standard is something that's, you know, there's kind of general goodwill around it, but there's actually no real uh, material uh, support for for doing such a thing. So I'm not kind of utopian. I'm not you know particularly optimistic about being able to do this. But I think that that's what uh, is necessary to at least start to have a conversation about deeply um, challenging educational curricula as they already exist, 
challenging, um, you know, perceptions that teachers and other people in positions of power, people who work in public services, in health services, in, uh, you know, Centrelink, be it whatever it is, uh, challenging their views of what racism is away again from this moralistic notion and towards a historically um, situated account of what race is and the extent to which uh, Australia particularly is uh, a country, if we want to call it that, or colony that is grounded in a racial colonial um, uh, you know, political project, which is ongoing. Now, how exactly we do that is something that no one person can can be able to do on their own because it's an enormous project. And, and this is what I think those of us who are working in this vein need to start very seriously, you know, to sit down and start to map out what it could look like in practice. Is it even possible to talk to, to about race to white people in, a, in an effective way, which I guess would have to be non-threatening in a way? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do like, you know, Rennie Edelot has said that, you know, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. And I think her point is absolutely correct, because until that defensiveness around talking about race is dropped, and as we were discussing, there's no self-interest in white people dropping that anytime soon, then I actually think unless white people are coming to the discussion of race without, with the willingness to re- not only to, to declare that they're going to drop the defensiveness, but to actually acknowledge when defensiveness is playing a part and to continue to do that, to note their own um, points of defensiveness all along that process, then the conversation is very hard. And the onus is placed on people of color and other racialized people to do the work. Um, and you know, I'm not saying anything new. This is something that black and indigenous people have been saying forever. Okay, mm. The onus is placed back on them to do the work, to hold people's hands, to take them along for the journey, to be calm about it, to be non-threatening and all of these types of things. You know, I am white. I'm Jewish. I have suffered racism and anti-Semitism, but I'm white I'm and I'm privileged and I have a position that allows me, it is my literal job to teach people about racism. Okay, yeah. this, this is what I <laughs> that do. That helps, okay? yeah. <laughs> and, and so the onus is on me and other people who are able to do this, to continue to do this. But, and this is the really important thing, to ground what we do in the teachings of Black, and particularly in this country, Indigenous people and other people of colour and racialized people who've been um, at the forefront, not only of living racism, but of theorizing it. And that's really, really important. Um, and yeah, we can try to, to continue to do that work, frustrating as it, as it may be, and it often is. In the, in, your, in the conclusion to your book, you say, between racists and anti-racists are peop- lie people who choose to be silent about race. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the point. The majority of people just go the majority of white people obviously people who are affected by racism don't have the choice of not thinking about racism the majority of white people have the privilege of not having to think about racism not and to not have to interrogate their place in upholding systems of racial rule and that's the problem that their um area uh particularly people who consider themselves liberal and progressive but who refuse to do this work of interrogation that's where the real problem lies because those are the people who are in power there are educators there are health workers um there are in government 
uh, they're across all areas of government at all levels and they're the people who are responsible for the perpetuation of the system that we're in um, and being not racist is not good enough but you know Ibram Kendi to return to him he says I think it's him who says you therefore have to be anti-racist and I also have a problem with this idea of anti-racism as an identity position mm. because if you can say I'm not racist you can also say I'm anti-racist and particularly in this recent Black Lives Matter moment you know it's interesting I was on the website for um, a book set, a bookshop doesn't matter which one recently and I noticed that last week they still had a lot of Black Lives Matter title titles on there front page and now they've all gone because yeah. the moment has passed you know so in that black lives matter moment plenty of people were saying give me anti-racism books tell me what to read let me do this let me do that and being an anti-racist was suddenly an ascription that everybody wanted to have so it's not as simple as saying don't be not racist be anti-racist because i can say i'm anti-racist but what am i actually doing about it it's a daily practice it's a daily practice and it has to be across everything that we do um, be it in education, being be it material and financial, be it um, you know in terms of our interpersonal relationships um, and our relationships with people when when we are in positions of power, because very often I think in academia particularly there are people who are who are very good at theorizing race but very bad at practicing anti-racism in their dealings with their colleagues and their students. Um, so yeah, show me, show me what you're doing to be anti-racist. And I don't think I don't think I'm perfect. I'm sure I've done many things that are wrong. I'm sure that I will continue to do many things that I that are wrong. But one thing I am willing to be is to be held to account on those things. Um, and I hope that people will continue to do that. Why should people yeah. read it? Look, I hope that it will spark a conversation. I think what it helps to do is to think about, you know, how we can relate debates that are happening all around us in the everyday, uh, in the media, among colleagues and friends, in social media and so on, to the bigger picture in terms of what race does. I prefer to talk about race as doing something rather than being something and allows us to set those questions that we might have about, yeah, again, those things that are turned into debate, so racism as a debate, um, with the, 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 the longer the longer durée, like the, the history of race. Uh, that, I just remembered the last question, the question I'd forgotten, which is, okay, uh, it's to do with how, and you mentioned Stuart Hall with this, it, it, mm. race being in a sliding scale, how, how slippery it is, how yes. it becomes different things. At, as soon as you've pinned it down, it's like trying to put your thumb on a, in a, on a cube of jelly on, on a slippery yeah. surface. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, Stuart Hall in his brilliant 1997 lecture, Race the Floating Signifier, which is then published as Race the Sliding Signifier, which is probably better than floating. He talks about race's slipperiness as being this object that's really, really difficult to pin down. And I think it's useful to relate that to this notion of race being a shape shifter. So it adapts itself to the context in which it finds itself, which is why it's really, really important to think about how each, you know, iteration of the racial project, so local iteration, has to be looked at, you know, in in its specificity. And this is why I have a problem when we come back to racial literacy with um, the importation of North American critical race concepts, important as they are, but unproblematically sort of transposing them onto the reality that we have here in Australia or in other countries. It's not as easy as that. It 
leaves too many things out of the picture when we try to do that. We can learn from the American context, but we can't think about race as being one and the same everywhere. And also over time, we need to look at how it shapeshifts. So I, I speak in the book and I've spoken briefly about it here, about its biological iteration, its religious iteration, its geographical iteration. But ultimately, I speak about race as being um, a technology for the management of human difference with the ultimate aim of maintaining white supremacy on both local and global levels. When we think about it with this general definition, then our job is to go away and look at, well, what does it look like here? What did it look like then? And what is it looking like today? And race, if we think about it as a technology, we can easily understand how necessarily it's in a constant um, process of evolution. You're with Communication Mixdown on 3CR, and that was Alana Lenton talking about her new book, Why Race Still Matters. That's all we've got time for on Communication Mixdown this week. We're going out tonight with a song picked by Alana. This is Gil Scott Heron with Save the Children.
Children. To save the children. To save the children.